today on Ag News Daily. As a tool for tackling climate, we think we're making a compelling case. Uh, they are listening politely to the case we are making, but we, we, you know, we won't know for some time until they take some action. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Thursday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr today. And Ashton, I've got some fun, I wouldn't call it news. I've just got a fun story to share with our listeners today. Well, let's hear it. We don't always have the most fun news, so I'm excited for this. Yeah, it's not really news. It's more, like I said, it's more of a story. And I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but my parents just randomly decided last year, end of last year into this year, that they were going to go work at a dude ranch this summer. So they're working in Western Colorado. I think it's pretty close to the Wyoming border, a little town called Slater, Colorado, which is in the middle of nowhere. It's about 27 miles on gravel to get to this ranch. So it's in the middle of nowhere. They don't really have a lot of cell reception and service. So it's very periodic, the updates that they send us. And so this morning, my mom sent us, my siblings and I, a a text message telling us about the cattle roundup that they've been having. And there's some funny parts to this, but there's also some sad parts to this, which I think elaborate really, or highlight the seriousness of the drought that's going on in a lot of parts of the country. So each year, this ranch, you know, has cattle that they'll graze. And that's what my parents are out there helping with. My dad's kind of a ranch hand and my mom's their cook. But they have unfortunately been having to load up all of the cattle this week because it is just too dry. They've not gotten a lot of rain. And so they are unfortunately had to round up all of the cattle this week and ship them off to move on with life. Um, and. So that's that's the sad part, right, is that there's a lot of folks out there dealing with this and the decision of what do we do? Do we try to continue to raise these cattle or do we move on? But the cool part, in my opinion, is that, again, she texted this to us this morning, um, but she said they're yearling calves averaging about 815 pounds. And they're all going to JBS in Greeley, Colorado. And she said that their JBS cattle buyer has been there every day to watch these cattle be load out. This has been an ongoing process. It hasn't just happened overnight, of course, right? But apparently the JBS cattle buyer told them that all of this meat is going to China. So I just thought it was really cool. Like the full story, you know, we talk about China, we talk about demand, but it's a very full circle for me right now. And I thought that was just a really cool thing that they texted us this morning. So that's my little story. That's very cool. I, like you said, it just comes full circle and it's really interesting when those things happen. Cause I feel like they don't happen a whole lot, or at least I don't hear a whole lot about it. Cause I guess I'm not really hands-on like your mom and dad are. Well, right. And you know, I think the thing that was most interesting to me is that we raise, you know, cattle or corn or soybeans or whatever the product might be, but we don't often know where they're headed directly. And I just thought it was neat that we actually know where these cattle are headed. Yeah, I think the only times that I've really known where our pork or our beef is headed is when it's our own animals that are just heading right to our deep freeze. Exactly. Yep, I agree. Well, Delaney, I'm going to kick things off here. And I've got a quick question on whether or not you enjoy mangoes. Uh, I'm not a big fruit person, so I'm going to say pass. 
Gotcha. I'm more of like a mango margarita person myself, but unfortunately the mango groves over in Egypt, normally going through harvest right now in mid-July, have been quiet this summer following an unexpected heat wave that has ruined much of the crop and hurt farmers' livelihoods. Of course, we've been talking a ton about weather from, you know, the floods in China to freezes in Brazil, and then, of course, heat waves and drought here in the U.S., but we really haven't talked about this part of the world. A sudden heat wave swept the Naya Delta province of Ismalia in early winter, and then again in late March. But those hot days and cool nights have disrupted the fruit's development. So if any of our listeners out there are big on mangoes, sounds like if you're getting your mangoes uh, from Egypt, you're not going to have much to pick from. No, it certainly sounds that way, Ashton. But uh, another market disruption that we're seeing, not in the fruit industry, but this time in the livestock industry, we had the very first case of African swine fever confirmed today by USDA's Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostics Laboratory. For the first time in 40 years, we've seen a case now detected in the Americas, more specifically in the Dominican Republic. There were samples collected just recently here. And so moving forward, the USDA said, of course, we are not going to be accepting products, meat products from the Dominican Republic. But they also said they're going to work closely with the DR to make sure that they are able to mitigate this. And in the hopes that, of course, it doesn't spread to the United States, but it's getting a little close for comfort, Ashton. You know, I saw that you retweeted this off of our Ag News Daily Twitter account, and I was really concerned. I, I've been obviously following African swine fever, and to know that it's, I mean, it's still not super close to home, but it's its a lot closer than I'd like it to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that is getting close, and I think a lot of producers have seen that piece of news and thought, Okay, do we need to start getting concerned that the threat is coming back to the United States? And so it's definitely a story we're going to have to continue to watch because this is really the closest case we've seen to the United States. It also makes me think, though, that producers here in the U.S. have been implementing better practices when it comes to biosecurity and I mean, they, they've been aware, especially the, the larger producers. So hopefully we won't see it wipe out any portions of our pork herd here in the U.S. But I'm going to talk a little bit here about Bayer, as officials announced earlier today that they are removing glyphosate from the U.S. residential lawn and garden marketplace, effective as early as January 2023. It's the earliest that the decision could be implemented, according to their president, Liam Condon. The company will replace glyphosate in the lawn and garden marketplace with what Condon described as active ingredients that are already known and well-established. More than 90% of Roundup litigation claims Bayer has faced in recent years has come from residential lawn and garden market business segments, and they are really taking action through this. Bayer currently has about 30,000 unsolved cancer claims that they are working to address through a five-point plan developed earlier this year. Yeah, Ashton, I'm glad that you brought this up. This was a piece of news I had today as well, but 
I think really what they're trying to do here is prevent any further litigation. You know, they've received a lot of flack so far over the past couple of years, more so from consumer-based groups, obviously, about the potential concern that it does cause cancer. And so it sounds like they're just trying to mitigate risks at this point, and they're just going to walk away from this. So I, I don't know enough about the science behind it to know how that changes the efficacy or the effectiveness of Roundup ready, but that is definitely a big question. Absolutely, Delaney. But do you have any other stories that you want to talk about today? I do have a a couple other quick pieces of news here. Got another update in the price fixing allegations that are going on, not in the protein, excuse me, not in the pork industry, in the poultry industry. The Justice Department's inquiry into the poultry sector price fixing has resulted in new indictments against the Illinois-based Cook Foods and four Pilgrim Pride's executives. And according to the Department of Justice's press release, they say the indictments are against a conspiracy to, quote-unquote, suppress and eliminate competition for sales of broiler chicken products. Like I said, they've indicted top officials at both of those two companies, and we'll continue to see how that uh, rolls out here. But this is after, of course, Pilgrim's Pride agreed back in February to plead guilty and pay a criminal fine of $107 million for its role already in this conspiracy. And so we are seeing them now be charged yet again with this same issue. So it doesn't sound like they're really learning their lesson yet, Ashton. It does not sound that way. And we've talked about that earlier this week, talking about how we don't think, or at least I can say that I don't think people are really learning their lesson when it comes to price fixing. And it's just another story to throw in the mix. Yes, it certainly certainly is, Ashton. But the only other piece of news here that I wanted to report on as we head into chatting markets is really just what's going on. Again, weather-based market that we're in right now, we're seeing weather impacted again in Brazil. And it was just reported today that Brazilian corn has hit $8.48 during their second crop harvest because they are having production issues. Argentinian corn is also expected to have rising prices and they're getting to a point where it almost appears that they may have to import the commodity from other other places, including the United, excuse me, including the United States. So we'll continue to watch that story and see how it develops. But uh, other than that, we're just continuing to watch what's coming out of this year's wheat tour and just it's confirming. And I know you guys talked a little bit about this yesterday, Ashton, on the podcast, but it's just confirming that we do have significantly reduced yields for spring wheat this year. It could be as low as 40% reduction. So that should be huge to support, especially the spring wheat market moving forward. And we saw those reactions today in the grain markets as we're continuing to see spring wheat head into some upward movement, extending its rallies today into a second day. But Ashton, what do you say we hop in here and chat all commodity markets? Let's do it. Fantastic. Well, as I mentioned there, 
We saw the wheat market extend their rallies today. We also saw green on the screen for corn and soybeans as the September corn contract closed up eight and a quarter cent to end at 557.5. The D sub seven cents to close at 556. In the soybean pits today, the September contract up 15 and a half cents to close at 1385 and three quarters. The November up 17 and a half cents to close at 13.78 and a quarter. Now hopping over into the spring wheat pits, as I mentioned today, this is a two-day rally here, a two-day extension from what we saw earlier this week. And the cash is still continuing to trade at a premium compared to the contract markets. September today up 13 cents to end at 9.16. The beast up nine and a half cents to close at $9 on the nose. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock pits for today, we saw... We saw some weakness across the cattle complex as the August 5 cattle contract shed 57.5 cents to close at 122.50. The October down 37.5 cents to close at 128.15. Hopping over to take a look at the feeder cattle markets today. Again, that weakness continued into the feeder cattle market with the August contract shedding $1.67.5 to close at 158.50. The September down $1.50 to close at 161.95. Now we saw some mixed trade today in the lean hog markets not really reacting to that African swine fever news as of yet. The August contract up 60 cents today to close at 106.30. The October down 55 cents to close at 88.97 and a half. And lastly, wrapping things up here with the class three dairy milk futures. August today down 12 cents to close at 16.23. The September up, excuse me, down 22 cents to close at 16.28. Ashton, remind us who we're chatting with for today's interview. Today, we are getting an ethanol industry update from Brian Jennings of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Well, today on the podcast, we are talking to Brian Jennings, who is the CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Brian, thank you so much for coming on and chatting with us today. You're welcome. It's my pleasure. So, Brian, like I was telling you beforehand, we really haven't talked with a representative from the ethanol industry in some time. So what's been going on? Are there any big headlines that we should really make sure that we hit on today? (laughs) I chuckle because uh, it's been an incredibly uh, busy uh, period of, of time here the last month or so in the ethanol industry. And Quite candidly, it, it, that that hasn't been uh, necessarily good for us. We've encountered some some uh, rough waters in the past month or so regarding some of the regulatory and uh, legislative priorities we have. And I guess things really got started uh, late in June when um, the Supreme Court finally issued their opinion on the landmark case that the American Coalition and for ethanol, renewable fuels association, and corn growers, and the farmers union, we're all involved in to try and rein in the number of these small refinery exemptions that EPA was granting uh, when it comes to the renewable fuel standard. Um, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court ruled that refineries can try to um, request these waivers or these exemptions from the renewable fuel standard at any time that they want. Um, We had argued successfully in a lower court um, that if a refinery had an exemption lapse, that they could not uh, petition to extend 
that exemption or that waiver, um, the Supreme Court invalidated that limit. So that that stung a bit, but um, I think the silver lining from that Supreme Court case is that there were two other restraints that the lower court had placed on the Environmental Protection Agency regarding how to go about handling these small refinery exemptions. And those two other restraints were not um, addressed by the Supreme Court, so they remain in place. And they should certainly limit uh, EPA's ability to, to hand these waivers out to refineries as, as haphazardly as they have in the past. And so we're kind of waiting um, to hear from the Biden EPA on how they digest and analyze uh, and internalize the Supreme Court decision and how they um, factor in the, the necessary restraints that are still in place from the lower court and then how they apply all of that to the 64 um, small refinery exemptions that are pending. Um, so that's really started things out. And then literally a week later, um, we had another court decision that was quite unfortunate. This was in the D.C. Circuit Court um, when they invalidated EPA's regulatory move to allow E15 to be sold year-round in all parts of the country. Uh, your listeners may recall that the previous administration had issued a regulation to allow E15 to be sold year-round in 2019. Um, and so, you know, we, we had part of 2019 and the summer of 2020, which was COVID, so we didn't really sell as much E15 as we would like. And we were hoping we were going to really recover that E15 market in an important way this year during the summer driving season. And E15 is still allowed to be sold, but if we do not find a remedy or way to fix this um, limitation that the DC circuit has placed on E15 year round, by June of next year, so June of 2022, um, we could be in trouble for uh, some parts of the country being able to sell E15 to motorists. And so there's a sense of urgency on our part to find a fix, to find a solution. Um, we're, we're pursuing multiple uh, avenues, routes, strategies in order to address that. We've we're hoping the Biden administration will um, appeal the decision, frankly, of the D.C. Circuit Court, which could buy us some time. Um, the Biden EPA could could figure out how to fashion a new proposed rule that would still allow E15 year round um, that did not violate the, the, the D.C. Circuit uh, decision. Uh, and then the third avenue or the third route we're pursuing is there's bipartisan legislation which has been introduced in um, Congress, which would um, codify the law and really clarify the law that, yes, E15 can be sold year round under the Clean Air Act. And so we're putting a lot of our um, resources and effort, grassroots advocacy behind that 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 legislation. Right. And there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and you mentioned quite a few different components that are going on right now and that you're basically waiting to hear back from the Biden administration on quite a few of those components. But have they gave you got, given you any sort of sense on what way they're leaning and their views on ethanol and the biofuels industry when it comes to things like the RVP waivers? 
We don't have a lot of um, feedback from the Biden EPA on the reed vapor pressure issue right now on the issue of E15 being sold year round in all parts of the country. I think um, I think EPA was as surprised as we are, perhaps that the, the DC Circuit invalidated that rule, and so we're waiting to hear back from them on how they intend to handle that. We have had much more um, robust interaction with EPA on ethanol in general and the Biden administration's approach to the renewable fuel standard. You know, they started out very uh, constructively, very positively uh, this year when they said that they were going to reverse the course of the Trump administration when it comes to small refinery binary exemptions. And instead of fighting us in court, uh, the Biden EPA actually joined with us and argued with us during that Supreme Court hearing that these these small refinery waivers need to be dramatically reined in. And so that that posture from them has been positive. But now we need to see the follow-up action. We need to see the Biden EPA deal with these 64 um, refinery waivers that are sitting um, on the desk of Administrator Regan and be much more judicious about whether or not they approve those because we're talking, you know, billions of gallons of renewable fuel and, and hundreds of millions of bushels of, of corn or soybeans that, that are sort of impacted by these decisions. And so it's a big deal for us, a big deal for rural America the other thing that we've really tried to actively and I would say proactively engage the Biden administration on, and I would say it's it's not quite clear if, if we're going to be successful or not, um, is that, you know, corn ethanol and other renewable fuels have um, an important role to play today immediately in helping the Biden administration achieve some of their very ambitious um, climate goals. Um, we know that the president and several members of his administration, um, you know, are, are big cheerleaders of electric vehicles. Um, we don't oppose electric vehicles necessarily. I think through a low carbon future or through a climate lens, electric vehicles and biofuels can and should be allies. But we're trying to get the Biden administration to understand that there's there's no such thing um, as sort of a silver bullet solution to climate in, in transportation and that you cannot electrify everything. There are too many obstacles, whether it's the grid or the, the cost of these, these vehicles, the consumer acceptance of them, the incredible um, amount of environmental damage that can and will be done as we mine different parts of the globe for the different minerals that go into the making of these batteries. Not to mention that a lot of electric vehicles today are plugging into power that's generated by fossil fuels. And so that doesn't make them any cleaner than renewable fuels. In fact, it makes them dirtier than ethanol and other renewable fuels. So trying to help the Biden administration understand that if they want to make a meaningful difference in climate change sooner rather than later, it would be important for them to embrace corn ethanol, to embrace rural America, and find a way to help increase the use of ethanol um, as a tool for tackling climate. We think we're making a compelling case. Uh, they are listening politely 
to the case we are making, but we, we, you know, we won't know for some time until they take some actions and we'll, we'll get to see if we've, we've had some success with that. And Brian, I want to talk a little bit about assistance because of the pandemic. Last month, back in June, the USDA announced more dollars going towards the biofuels industry. Have y'all heard anything about how they're going to distribute funds? Because it was supposed to be, I believe, 60 days after that implementation that funds were supposed to go out to producers. Have you heard anything about that and maybe how they're going to make sure that these smaller family-owned businesses are taken care of as well? Yeah, that's a that's a concern for us. Given the limited dollars that USDA is making available to provide assistance to biofuel producers from the economic damage that was done to us as part of the pandemic, we really want to make sure that these small, independent, um, farmer-owned ethanol plants receive their fair share of those limited dollars, and the dollars aren't funneled to the very largest producer that would sort of exasperate consolidation of the production um, ownership capacity of the industry. So USDA is going to set aside $700 million to assist biofuel producers, primarily ethanol producers, who were negatively impacted by uh, the economic shutdowns that were associated with the, the pandemic um, we know that USDA has put together a, a program for how they would like to um, roll these payments out. And we know that that um, proposal is sitting over at the, the White House Office of Management and Budget, the OMB, going through final clearance um, before the details will be shared publicly. Um, I feel good about our interaction with USDA on this, and I feel good about the fact that Tom Vilsack is back in uh, the secretary's office, um, he understands and frankly is a strong supporter of the ethanol industry. Um, but I'm concerned about the timing of this. I mean, USDA has been pretty candid with us that they were hoping that we would have more details of this payment program by now. Um, and that things are weeks behind at USDA with, or excuse me, at the OMB with respect to finalizing um, sort of the rules of the road. And so, you know, we're supposed to know more by mid-August. I hope we will, um, but we, we continue to press both uh, the administration um, and, and the Department of Agriculture to kind of help get these dollars out the door because, you, you know, you think about the fact it's already, it's for all practical purposes, we're into August, right? Uh, one, and the the damage was done um, sort of March, April, May, June of 2020. And so the, the, a lot of time has, has gone by since a lot of that initial damage has been done in today. And so the sooner we can just kind of get this, aid program out the door, um, the better. Well, Brian, we certainly appreciate you coming on to the podcast today and giving us an update on where everything is sitting. And I know that you mentioned that it's been a busy past month or so, but there's no stopping because you guys have your conference ACES conference next month. I mean, I say next month, we're almost in August now, but in just about two and a half weeks or so. So good luck with that. And I look forward to hearing more about what's going on after the conference. 
Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's August 19th and 20th in Minneapolis. And if any of your listeners are interested in attending an ethanol conference in person, they can go to ethanol.org uh, for more information and how to register. So thank you. Well, again, big thank you there to Brian for giving us a quick update on ethanol. Unfortunately, we didn't have even time to touch on some of the bigger question topics, Ashton, like where do we head from here? So we may have to have another ethanol industry expert on soon to chat about that. Absolutely, Delaney. But in the meantime, we are having some interesting conversations. In particular, of course, our labor mini series that we kicked off yesterday. Folks, if you did miss that, you can always listen at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.